Amen. Would you thank the worship team for all their work that they put in every week? They do a great job. Really quick, it is my privilege to be the pastor of Real Life. My name is Rich Doring, and uh, we're thrilled that you're here. And uh, this is a very special day. So we're having this one service at 1030. And then afterwards, we're going to eat, which it's not hard to figure out which part of the day is going to be my favorite part. But there's food trucks out there tacos, stuff like that. So I get pretty excited about that stuff, but there's all kinds of different things out there. Here's my ask of you. Today, after we're done, make sure you stick around. Make sure you stick around. We have this incredible opportunity to show hospitality to our neighbors, and we very much intentionally have invited the neighbors around this facility that, uh, that we have, and uh, we want to invite them to be a part of, of who we are and uh, what we're doing is real life. So we have this incredible opportunity to be hospitable, Uh, to others. So I just want to encourage you, have fun. Make sure you drink water when you're out there. It's a little warm. There's tents, there's activities, there's a roller rink. Okay, nobody seemed really excited about the roller rink. Um, Just so you know, we're assigning skates once you walk out there. The last people to walk out there get the skates. So make sure you get out there after we're done today. But uh, we're just thrilled, 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 thrilled to have you here today in this one service, and uh, we've not done this in a while, so I'm going to ask you to stand again. It's all right, we can get this workout in. I'm going to ask you to stand, and uh, I want to ask you, kind of respecting people's distance and stuff, would you find a couple people, just tell them you're glad to see them today, they're good looking, and uh, you're just thrilled to see them. Good looking, man. All right, before you take your seats, we are having communion at the end of the message, so if you need one of those communion elements, those cups that are outside and you didn't get one, make sure you run out there uh, before we start and do that. For the rest of you, go ahead and grab your seats. My wife and I were on vacation this last week, and... uh, had a good time. I really appreciate uh, Zach, our youth director, bringing the message last week. He did a fantastic job. Yeah. <laughs> did a great job. And uh, what I want to ask you to do, we're kind of continuing this focus. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Galatians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the back. There's some by the coffee house. Those are a gift. So if you don't have a Bible and need one, I want to encourage you to grab one of those as you leave today. But uh, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 6. And um, today's going to feel a little bit more maybe like a teaching message. And um, it's not going to be one that's necessarily designed to give you warm fuzzies. But uh, I don't really get in the habit of passing those out very often. But uh, this is going to be, I feel a little bit more like a teaching because it's really a continuation of what Zach talked about last week. And all of these one another's love one another is really the root of all of these one another's. But last week, he did a great job bringing about what it means to forgive one another, the challenges that are associated with forgiving one another. And if you're new here today, our focus in this church this whole year has been on one. What does it mean for a church to be unified in a world that's full of division, in a world that's full of rhetoric, in a world that 
unfortunately, division creeps into the church as well. What does it look like for the body of Christ not to add to that division, but then also just provide this unified front? What does it mean for us to truly, as a church, be one? And Jesus said in John 17, he's praying, and he's praying for the disciples, he's praying for us, that we might be one as he and the Father are one. He said, then the world will know. Then the world will know that you sent me when we somehow live as one. So we've been talking about that last week. Again, Zach talked about forgiving one another. How does that add to that oneness? And um, as a reminder, we've kind of landed on this focus. You'll see it on the screen. Our connection with God, my connection with God, your connection with God, increases as we are more connected to one another. So the more that I, as a follower of Jesus, am connected to other followers of Jesus, God uses that to grow his connection with me even more. I get closer to God as I'm living out my life with you, okay? Our mission in this church, real life, we love God, we love people, we serve the world. Now, my, my temptation is to sometimes treat those as three separate things. I love God. I love loving God. I love coming and singing worship. All, you know, all this, it's amazing. That's awesome. The people part, people are messy. People got drama. I got drama. Okay? You got drama. The people are, I love the love God part. That's awesome. But here's the deal. All three of these, love God, love people, love, serve the world, they're not mutually exclusive. They're connected. They're connected to one another. And so if it's okay, I'm just going to jump right in to what we're talking about today. As the Apostle Paul, he's addressing a church in a place called Galatia. And the church in Galatia, the Galatians were really, really struggling with something called legalism. So legalism is a spiritual term, but it's a, it's a churchy term, but it really it refers to this idea that if I can figure out the set of rules and the list of do's and do nots to keep, then if I will keep those things, if I will do those things, then I will become acceptable to God. Or to the extreme, it's the idea of, oh man, I've done all these horrible things in my life, so now I'm going to start doing all these really, really good things, and I'm going to keep all the right rules, and somehow that scale of my life is going to tip into my favor so that when I die, I'm saved. I'll make it to heaven. So legalism really, in a nutshell, is putting the cart before the horse. It's the idea that there are actions and behaviors that I can do that make me okay with God, okay? The problem is keeping up appearances doesn't work. It just doesn't work. In Galatians chapter five, so one chapter earlier, uh, Paul tells us that to follow Jesus, what we have to do is we actually have to walk in step with the Spirit. What does that mean? For example, he says in Galatians 5.16, I say walk in step with the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Immediately, our mind, because we hear the word flesh, think something sexual or something along those lines. Listen, the desires of the flesh are wanting to throat punch somebody because they said something you didn't like. I mean, there's all kinds of desires of the flesh that pop up, okay? But if you'll walk in step with the Spirit, Paul is saying, then you won't gratify those things. He's telling people in, in that church, and I think it's just a universal application here, that if you will follow the Holy Spirit in your life, you can be free from the power of sin, and also as a result, the church, the body of Christ, us, will thrive as you individually and with one another walk in step 
with the Spirit. So we, we kick this off, the series off, the first one, love one another. That's the easy one, okay? That was the easy one to preach. Loving one another sounds flowery, it sounds nice, it sounds Pinteresty, it sounds all kinds of stuff, okay? Until it doesn't. Until loving one another hurts or comes at a price, okay? Uh, restoring one another, which is what we're talking about today, is one of those hard aspects of what it means to love one another. And so we're just going to jump right in. It's Galatians chapter 6. Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, a sin, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. Fulfill the law of Christ. For if anybody thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So, in my years of ministry, one of the things, one of the burdens that I carry is just the reality that, that God is very, very concerned about the health of his body, about how we are doing, not just with him, but with one another. How are we doing with one another? And, you know, if you know that something is wrong in your physical body, what's, what's the thing that you do that makes sense? You, you go to the doctor, right? You go to the doctor to find out what's, what's going on. So, restoring one another, the thing that we're talking about today, restoring another believer speaks to the overall health of the body. There's always going to be elements of the body that get sick. There's always going to be elements of the body that need restoration, that need resetting, that need uh, discipled, okay, that need to be fixed. That's not the issue. The issue is, is this the kind of a church? Are we the kind of a church that's safe enough? or presents ourselves in a way where restoration of human beings can actually happen in the way that Paul talks about here. And so he's highly concerned about that, but it begins with something called picking them up. Picking them up. Now, full disclosure, we're going to spend most of our time on this first point. On this first point. Uh, until you and I die, until that day comes, you and I are going to deal with the temptation to sin in our life. None of us are free from temptation. Anger, lust, what, I mean, name them, whatever you want. Putting somebody on blast on Facebook, whatever. We're all struggle with temptation to sin. The other reality is, is we all also suffer the consequences and the reality of the sins of others. When other people act outside of the will of God, it has a ripple effect. As much as we'd like to think that our own behavior only affects us, that's just not true. It's a lie. It affects everything around us. And so when we talk about being caught in sin, as Paul talks about in Galatians 6, what I want you to think about is fishing. I love to fish, and I fish. Not much catching, okay? But I fish. The idea of fishing is that you will catch something. And the idea of being caught, you have a hook. And the idea of being caught is that you've been ensnared, you've been caught in something, and you can't unhook yourself from it. 
You've been drugged somewhere because you've been caught by something. That's the idea Paul is getting at here when he talks about being caught in sin. This isn't you got caught with your hand in the cookie jar caught. Okay, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about somebody who is entangled and caught in a sin and they can't seem to break it. They can't get out of that cycle, at least not without help. And so being caught in sin is a really, really big deal because it starts to affect everything. When I sin in my life, first of all, it affects me. It affects me. Right in the middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms. Okay. And the book of Psalms is this great resource, particularly for funerals, particularly when you're having a bad day. There's a lot of encouragement in the Psalms. There's a lot of reminders of putting our hope in God and what an incredible thing that he's done for all of us. But the guy who authored most of the book of Psalms, King David, if you look at some of the Psalms that he's written in there, they're miserable. I mean, the guy is just miserable. He detests himself. He cries out to God, where are you? Oh, that's right. I did some really, really bad stuff. I wouldn't be near me either. And, and David, over and over and over again, he's miserable. He lacks peace. And the reason is because of some of the things that went on in his life. If you know anything about King David, at one point, he sees this lady on a roof. He's like, yeah, I kind of like that. So he decides to take her. So essentially, it's sexual assault. And then when that kind of doesn't work out real great, she goes ahead, he goes ahead and orders that her husband be killed. So he, he did the bad thing, but then he's like, let's double down and do the really, really bad thing. So he's done all of this stuff in his life, and he's just sin sick. And I've talked about this a little bit before, but have you ever in your own life been sin sick? Sick over your own condition. Now listen, we live in a world where everybody is an expert of going online and describing how sin sick everybody else is. We're like really good at that. However, do you ever get sick over your own heart? Some of the burdens that you carry, some of the baggage that you carry around, some of the, the grievances that you hold on to, that you nurture over and over again, sin affects us. It affects us. David lacked peace because of sin. And there's a reason. It's because sin affects our relationship with God. It doesn't just affect me. It affects my relationship with God. See, when we sin, we introduce brokenness into our relationship with God. God's whole goal is to restore us. His whole goal is to bring us real life. His whole goal is to help us have peace, help us have joy in a full, unadulterated relationship with him. He created us for that. But in the midst of that, when we sin, what we do is we actually introduce brokenness into the midst of what God is trying to do. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. God has done that for us, which has clear implications. One of those things being our sin also affects others. It affects the church. And again, I know we live in this highly individualistic society. We are celebrating our independence as a nation. <laughs> and, and just the very name, I'm glad for that, but the very nature of that word speaks to, ain't nobody going to tell me what to do, Okay. And so we, we have this very individualistic, individualized idea of what our lives look like. But our sin, when we engage in sin, 
it actually affects the body of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians says, For one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. Go on, verse 26 in, in chapter 12, he says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So when individuals sin, it does affect the body, the health of the body. But it also gives the world pause concerning the church. I love being a pastor. I do uh, most days. Um, I entered into ministry in August, I'm sorry, June of 1997. And in those years since, and I'm going to use this word, the evolution of what pastoral ministry has looked like in those decades has changed more than I ever imagined that it ever would. And one of the challenges of being a pastor, and I'm, this is not a sob story, this is why I started by telling you I love to be a pastor. I can't imagine myself doing anything else. But one of the realities of being a pastor today is understanding that immediately my vocation is under 100% scrutiny. There's a reason I struggle when I go get my haircut to tell them what I do. Because as soon as I do, you can almost see the, the whole thing change the whole conversation. Am I one of those people? And you might take offense to that and think, well, what if we are one of those people? Okay, get over yourself for a second, okay? My goal is to build a relationship with people and lead them to Jesus Christ. But I also recognize that I don't know if we need to go down the litany. Like the, the words celebrity pastor, those are two words that should never have ever been in the same sentence ever in the history of the world. But how many need to fall? How many need to be caught in sexual sin? How many of them need to be caught in abuse? And the whole world looks and looks at the churches that sometimes support those people doing those things and thinks, yeah, you're not even buying what you're selling. Why would I? The, the world has our number. A couple weeks ago, I think it was last month, actually, a report came out about sexual abuse cover-ups in the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Every single news outlet, even some that have no credibility, <laughs> picked up this abuse scandal that has taken place in that denomination. And it is horrible. For decades, they systemically vilified victims of sexual abuse by their pastors and their leaders in their denomination. They covered up misdeeds. They showed more concern about litigation than they did the well-being of the victims of what had happened to them. And it even today, even this week, still posture themselves as being victims themselves after identifying 703 abusers. I mean, that just endears you to the church, doesn't it? Doesn't it make you just want to look at that and say, sign me up. I can't wait to be a part of that. Okay, sin affects everything. Affects everything. So what needs to happen? When I was growing up, 
My dad sold truck parts, worked hard all day long, and we would come home from school and make a mess, and sure enough, it'd be about five to six. And my mom would say, your dad's gonna be home in five minutes. Just wait until he gets home, okay? Which did something, okay? It gave us fear. I became fearful. I became fearful not because my dad was going to walk into the room and say, okay, yeah, you made a mess. All right, what do we need to do next time? He wasn't coming in to discipline us. He was coming in to punish us. And I was afraid of being punished. I knew what being punished looked like and felt like, okay? So all of a sudden, that that gave me a fear. Listen, discipline, discipline is forward-focused. And we have a really hard time understanding the difference between discipline and punishment. Discipline sometimes feels like punishment because we don't like what it looks like. But they're two different things. You discipline somebody to point them in a different direction, to reset their course. It involves participation. If you're going to discipline somebody, you don't just spank them, okay? You come alongside of them so that their behavior changes. You come alongside of them and say, no, here we go. Here we go. That's what discipline, discipling looks like. That's what that looks like. Punishment is just to to give you pain because of a past failure. That's what punishment does. Discipline always happens out of love. Verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now let's walk through a couple things here. Are you guys okay? Are you still with me here? All right. Who is the spiritual person? Here's a good test of whether or not you should speak to another person about the sin in their life. Is your heart broken over their brokenness? Or are you just angry? Are you just ready to drop the hammer on somebody? Because listen, How you answer that question, how you answer that question reveals whether or not you're walking in step with the Spirit. The Spirit that says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. There's no law against any of that in God's kingdom. Okay, so are you walking in step with the Spirit? On the flip side, some of you are thinking, sitting here right now, and I know this because I think this way sometimes, Man, what business is it of mine to get all up in somebody else's business? I mean, you do you, I do me. Hey, man, (laughs) who am I to judge somebody else? Who am I to question somebody else's actions and behavior? The Bible says judge not. Okay, first of all, a couple things. There's a total misappropriation of Matthew 7.1. Okay, there's a total misapplication of judge not that you not be judged. But secondly, one of the things that I've just realized, and I realized this in my own life, I usually say things like that because I don't want somebody getting all up in my business and finding out what they don't know and nobody else knows about what's going on in my life. If I get all up in somebody else's business, particularly if it's the kind of business I kind of mess around with over here but nobody knows about, I'm going to start feeling bad. I'm going to start feeling bad. And so it's easy to back off in those moments. And that's why this passage is here. That's why Paul is talking about these things. Restoration is always going to be needed among God's people. 
It's always going to be needed. The question is, will we do it and how will we do it? The word for restore in the Greek means to set up again. It means to restore something to its original position or intention. Let's say that again. To restore something is to set it up again to its original position or intention. It's actually a medical term for the setting of a bone. I was in fourth grade, gym class. I was racing Adam Michael, and I was super fast. And I was so fast, I evidently didn't see the wall that I ran right into. I was fast, I wasn't bright, okay? And sure enough, hit that wall and snap, snap my arm, boom. Okay, now that hurt. I was in fourth grade, but you know, it was what it was. So it broke my arm, they sent me home, go to the hospital. While breaking my arm hurt, do you know what hurt worse? Holy cow. I mean, as a fourth grader, my mom learned that, I mean, long story short, when I was growing up, my mom used to take us to my grandma's bar every Wednesday, and uh, I would sit in there with all these guys, and the language was just wonderful. I just, (laughs) it was in that moment my mother discovered, wow, Rich is just like them. And uh, because what does he do? He grabs that arm and says, all right, hang on to something. That's never good words to give a fourth grade. And then next thing you know, pull, push, and yeah, there it went. Nurses were blushing. It was bad, okay? Now, here's what you know, and I know this. What was he doing? He's fixing it. (laughs) He's resetting it to its original intent, to its original position, to its original place. But sometimes in order to do that, man, it hurts. It hurts to grab that thing and put it back into place. The motive behind that pain is restoration, a reset. Uh, Last week, when uh, Zach talked about forgiveness, we had uh, Philip and Ruby Peters come and share. And uh, Philip's going to come up at this time. Really quick, uh, when we were talking about forgiveness and restoration, Philip and Ruby's story is the one that that immediately popped into my mind. That's why we asked them to share. And uh, last week... We're very, very vulnerable in uh, talking about what is forgiveness and why it was needed and how they've experienced it. And I've asked Philip now to kind of continue that story because it doesn't end with just forgiveness. It goes into restoration. What does restoration look like? Good morning. Um, Are you on there? There you go. uh, Last week, Ruby and I spoke on forgiveness. Uh, This week, restoration. Uh, After the affair. There you go. I had consequences to deal with. Uh, My wife and family were not only hurt, but their world and their trust were broken, and I didn't know how to fix it. I had lost my job, causing financial hardships, and our lives were in turmoil. I met with my friends in the church who spoke hard truths into my life. They didn't just speak it, though, which I need to make clear. They walked it out with me. Discussing things like transparency, what it looked like to earn trust, and what it looks like to love your spouse like Christ loves the church. I learned to love my wife, period, without conditions. My wife, my friends held me accountable were uh, in such ways that I surrendered my phone, my passwords, and being accountable to where I was and who I was talking to at any time. 
Our pastor at the time, Woody, who I looked at as a father figure, pulled me aside and asked me if I was ready to make things right. I didn't exactly know what he meant when he asked me that because I thought we were already moving towards reconciliation. Uh, I had no idea what was next, but Woody then informed me I needed to make amends. I sent a letter to the woman making amends for my part of the affair, the lies that I had told, and that there would be no further contact. Fear gripped me when Woody told me he wanted me to meet with the woman's husband to make amends and apologize for the hurt and pain I'd caused him and their family. I didn't know what to expect. This was, by the way, in Virginia. So for all I knew, my pastor just set me up to be shot. Uh, uh, I hesitantly agreed to meet with him, uh, but with the pastor present, uh, I made my amends. This wasn't about saying sorry, though. This was about having that ugly cry moment of sorrow for your offenses. I found over time that I I had to give Ruby the time to heal as well. There were times that I was frustrated that she didn't trust, but I had to be patient and let God work through her. This October, Ruby and I will be celebrating our 22nd wedding anniversary, and we've been together (laughs) for 27 years. Um, It's because we chose God, forgiveness, and restoration over self. It wasn't easy to go through, but it's been worth it to see how God has moved in and through our lives. He continues to bring people into our lives that we can share this story with and walk things out with like was walked out with us. One of the verses that came to us during this time was, an, was amazing through our restoration was Joel 2.25. I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. Uh, thank you for letting me share. I appreciate that, and I appreciate that vulnerability as well. And uh, we've had the privilege of getting to know Philip and Ruby quite well. And uh, Philip, thank you for being my friend. Uh, Philip is one of those guys who regularly sends me messages and texts asking me how I'm doing and uh, just checking up on me, making sure I'm, I'm still around. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate your friendship. I do. And uh, I'm proud of you, proud of how God is working in both of your lives. It's an amazing story. But it's a radical one, isn't it? Yeah, go ahead. And you and I know sometimes there are exceptions. It takes two people. It takes two people in God. Sometimes it takes even other more people involved to see full restoration take place. But it's possible. It does happen. It may not happen in every circumstance. It may not happen in your circumstance, whatever that is, in the way you desire to see it work. But what does it look like to be a church that fosters that? That's a challenge. It really is. Paul gives kind of an overall attitude uh, that we bring to the situation. How do we restore somebody? And the first is gentleness. Gentleness. We talked about this before. A really easy way to understand gentleness is that it's not weakness. Gentleness is actually strength. And it's strength that's been brought under control. So it best suits the need of the person that you're working with or speaking to. That's what gentleness is. It's the idea of a horse, a very, very strong, powerful animal that's very dangerous, being bridled, 
and brought under control so that it can do the things that it needs to, to do to help, to serve, to work. That's the idea of gentleness. Your strength, your strength being presented in such a way that it actually benefits the other person. First Thessalonians 2.15 says, do not regard that person as an enemy. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. As a brother, that's gentleness. But it also happens through humility. Humility. Paul said, keep watching yourself lest you too be tempted. A spiritual person knows the meaning of there but for the grace of God go I. Temptation is common to all of us. All of us. Uh, If I'm preparing to approach somebody about sin in their life and, and my thoughts are you ding dong. I mean, how stupid can you be? I saw this thing coming a mile away. I mean, why in the world would you do that? Why would you put yourself in that position? Why in the world? Who do you think you are that you would get off saying stuff like that? I mean, what, what is wrong with you? If that's my approach in approaching somebody, here's my guarantee for you. You are not the person God is going to use to bring restoration into that person's life. They might punch you, (laughs) but the bottom line is you're not gonna be that person. You're not gonna be that person because you're falling into sin yourself when you do those things. And Jesus talked about this, Matthew 7, three through five, the Rich Doring paraphrase. Hey, before you start taking splinters out of other people's eyes, maybe you should take the telephone pole out of yours. Do you have to be perfect to do this? I mean, if perfection's what's required when we're all in trouble, it's not gonna happen. But humility, humility covers a multitude of sins. Humility and gentleness are necessary. Now, that was all point one. Don't worry, these others will go quickly, okay? We pick the person up, but then we also bear them up. He says, bear one another's burdens. That's just not the hard stuff people are going through. That also includes the burden of sin that they might be going through. Paul says, bear one another's burdens so that you can fulfill the law of Christ. So very quickly, Jesus is the greatest burden bearer of all time. Hannah read that passage earlier. He says, come to me, all who labor and are are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He bears our greatest burden, the burden of sin, the burden of death, okay? And after you pick up a believer caught in sin, of which the wages of sin is death, when you pick up a believer caught in sin, now you come alongside of them and you shoulder the weight of the confession of that sin. It doesn't seem fair because you're not the one that did it. So so what? You come alongside another believer and bear the burden. Shoulder the weight. They need support. You heard that in Philip's story. You need that support to make it through that restoration. We pray for them, but we also pray with them. We provide accountability. We jump into a life group with them. And if there isn't a life group, we start one and ask them to be a part of it. There's tons of ways to help bear the burden of somebody being restored. Pointing out sin, that's the easy stuff. We're experts at it. Pointing out sin is the easy stuff. The hard part is restoring one another. That's the dirty work. That's the grunt work. That's the brother, sister, in Christ work that we're called to. He goes on to say, if anybody thinks he's something, 
When he's nothing, he deceives himself. Listen, a self-righteous person, somebody who lacks humility, is not going to bear the burdens of somebody else. They're just not going to. It's not worth it to them. Paul says, let each one test his own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not in his neighbor. So what is he talking about there? I think, honestly, what he's doing is saying everybody should examine themselves for a second. Instead of judging your own spiritual health by the faults of other people, I'm not as bad, or look at what they did, or look at those horrible people, and all that kind of different stuff. Maybe a better approach would be just to go ahead and let Christ examine your life without any comparisons. Without any comparisons, other than his life. That will give you humility. Again, I just, can I give you the Rich Doring paraphrase? You ain't all that. <laughs> and neither am I. Okay? Anything that we are is because of Jesus. Anything that we are is because of Jesus. Listen, if you have to point out and compare your goodness to the non-goodness of other people to pr- prove that you are good, you're not good. <laughs> you're not good. That's not humility. So Paul says when we seek to restore one another, somebody caught in sin, we pick them up, we bear them up, but then finally we keep them up. We keep them up. You don't just walk away. You keep them up. Verse 6 is really interesting. It doesn't look like it fits. It says, let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. The word good things translates to spiritual things. Let the one who's taught all these spiritual things. So what Paul is saying is this. The person who's been picked up, the person who's being bore up and now being kept up by being taught spiritual things to aid in their restoration, it's the idea of coming alongside of that person, holding that person accountable, providing support, these good things these spiritual things like accountability, like fellowship, guidance, prayer, mentoring, assimilated back. This is, this is so powerful, okay? The idea that you can be assimilated back into the full fellowship of a church, kept up in, in that they now bring health to the body, like any other part that walks in step with the Spirit. This is restoration. It's this, it's this beautiful picture of a prodigal coming home, or it's, it's a beautiful picture of that lost sheep being found. It's, it's, it's that beautiful picture of somebody who has made a decision, somebody who has taken an action that has, has been sinful. They've been caught in a sin, but yet there are people that love them enough to walk through this with them. And is it hard? Yeah. Is it dirty? Absolutely. I don't know where we got the idea we signed up for easy stuff. This is the, we have a savior who died on a cross and was crucified. Okay. He didn't sign up for the clean stuff. And we don't either. People are messy. This is messy. The one and others, they're messy. And restoration is messy. It doesn't always go exactly the way it did with Philip and Ruby. Sometimes somebody does walk away. Sometimes there's abuse. And these are always, this is always my caveat when we talk about these things. If you're in a situation where there's abuse, I need you to understand and see things through that filter. If you're being abused right now, we'll have a different conversation. We'll talk about forgiveness and restoration and trust at some other point, okay? So if that's you, you need to talk to me. But it's this idea that we all walk in step with the Spirit. That, to me, 
is a picture of the beauty of the body of Christ. And it's rare. It doesn't happen very often. It doesn't happen very often. But that is what loving one another looks like. It includes restoring one another. I think God wants to help us to be that kind of a body of Christ. I really do. I really do. Um, I want to read something for you. I think it's kind of cheesy. That's my caveat. Um, I think it's kind of cheesy, but I like it. Um, And I think it's smart. And then I want to talk to you about um, Roe versus Wade. Uh, There was once a man who fell into a pit. A sympathetic person walked by and said, I feel for you in that pit. A pontificating person said, of course somebody fell in that pit. A philosopher said, you only think that you're in a pit. A Pharisee said, listen, only bad people fall in pits. A politician said, you deserve your pit. A celebrity preacher said, just believe yourself out of that pit. Visualize it, I can see it. I'm sorry, I'll stop, all right. (laughs) An introvert avoided the pit altogether. An influencer posted a pic of the person and the pit and told everybody about the man's pit. A narcissist said, a pit? Have you seen my pit? Jesus seeing the man lifted him out of the pit. Will you be Jesus to somebody? It's the hard work. It's the hard work. But it's worth it. Um, We're going to have communion in just a moment. But before we do that, um, I know that uh, there's been some things that have happened over the last week, two weeks. And so I do want to talk to you just really quick about Roe versus Wade. Uh, we, uh, we as a church believe in the sanctity of life. We believe in the sanctity of life. And uh, last Friday, uh, as I checked uh, the news, my mind was flooded with what does this mean, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, legalized abortion? What does that mean for the church? What does that mean for the body of Christ, believers? And then I went on social media, and my mind was filled with frustration as I saw people destroying others with rhetoric on both sides, on both sides, Uh, further proving that not only how divided our nation is, but how divided the church is too. Uh, So can I just offer just a couple of pastoral thoughts? Is that okay? People who highly value life, which we do, people who highly value life lead with love. We lead with compassion. We lead with mercy and forgiveness. We lead with the fruit of the Spirit, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's how we lead as followers of Jesus. And so my, my statement to you is this, be careful in how you interact. Be careful with the words that you choose to use in certain settings. Somebody famously said one time that uh, you might be the only Christ somebody ever sees. You also might be the only Christ somebody ever reads or hears. So I just want to encourage you to use your words carefully. Um, You know, I'm a pro-life person, 
And to me, that means a whole lot more than just being anti-abortion. And we're going to talk about that here in just a second. Being pro-life means more than being anti-abortion. For many Christians, not all Christians, okay, but for many Christians, the only cost for being pro-life up to this point has been a willingness to vote a certain way. Being pro-life costs a whole lot more than just the way you vote. We're pro-all life. Are we a safe place for somebody who needs to talk about what they maybe have gone through or may be facing? This is a time, this is an opportunity for the church to step up and show what a pro-life stance looks like in action. And I hope you understand, I understand that this is a polarizing topic. It's not my intention to be a polarizing individual, but it is my desire to bring us back to center and where we understand that we are people of this middle way, where we don't justify certain actions, but we also are not in a position to malign people. Here's the other thing as a pastor. I've had conversations with people who are really struggling right now because of the consequences of decisions they made 10, 20, 30 years ago. And today they sit looking around at a body of believers like this one, Wondering, is this a safe place where I can say, I did something once. I did something once. Or twice. Is this one of those places where they can find somebody who will come alongside them, who will love them, who will walk and bear a burden? We have these amazing opportunities to be these little Christs in our world today. Let's make sure that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart are acceptable in his sight. He's our rock, he's our redeemer, and whether you're whatever in all of this, he's our rock and our redeemer, okay? <laughs> he's got this. He's got this. He's asking us to be the light and the salt in the world around us. More often than not, people need a loving person who will come alongside of them and build a relationship with them, then they need to be smacked with the truth. Okay. Do we still stand for truth? Absolutely. And I know that you know all the arguments, pro-life, pro-choice, all those kinds of different things. It gets really muddy really fast, and guess what? Nobody usually wins in those arguments because we've all forgotten how to talk to one another in a civil way. So whenever you engage... Be civil. Be civil, be God-honoring, and be people-edifying, too, in your conversations. So, I'm going to ask Hannah and the worship team, if they would, to come up. Uh, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to take that cup of communion, if you've got that there. And uh, I want to invite you to come to this table in our church. We invite anybody to be a part of uh, communion. Uh, who confesses a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you are putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone today, we want to invite you to be a part of this. Come to the table where bread and cup are transformed by the Spirit of God into a meal of love. It's a meal of grace. It's a table where all souls are welcome. So let me pray this prayer of communion for us. Loving God, whose divine lungs 
exhaled the Spirit into our world, your breath continues to transform our world. Before the earth was formed, the Spirit of God swirled through the voids and shadows. As humans were created, the air of God filled the lungs of Adam and Eve. This divine air continues to fill us up. When our bones are dry and spirits are sluggish, God, make this meal awaken our sleepy hearts and stagnant souls. May we stir from our sadness and rise from our hopelessness. As we share this meal, let us remember our siblings in faith who came to this table in decades and centuries past and our children who will surround this table in the future. Each generation uniquely celebrates your presence, spirit of life. The night before Jesus died was a solemn time. He broke bread, drank from a cup. Jesus asking us to remember him in our eating and drinking. After the day of resurrection, the disciples ate on the beach with the risen Christ, celebrating new life, new hope, new vitality. As we come to the table, let us celebrate the spirit of resurrection and the promise of a needed second wind in our own lives. So let us partake of this celebratory meal together. I'd ask that you take that bread out. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which will be broken for you. Every time you eat, would you do so? Remembering me, and so we do the same. Have you prepare the juice? On the same night, the same meal, Jesus took the cup, gave it to his disciples and said, this represents my blood, which is spilt for you to establish a new covenant. So every time you drink this, do so in remembrance of me and we do the same. Would you stand with me? Father, we come before you today in a spirit of celebration. We're here as the body of Christ. In a few moments, we're going we're gonna to walk out these doors and we're going to celebrate together. We're just going to enjoy ourselves. We're going to eat some good food, have some good conversations, love one another and love our neighbors. So Father, would you help us to have a spirit of hospitality as we go? And Father, today as we celebrate in this last song, I pray that uh, the words that we sing right now would just be an honor and a blessing to you. Father, we're excited that you have essentially done everything necessary to restore us. You loved us enough that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Father, you've extended us this grace, this incredible mercy, this overwhelming flood of love for us. Thank you. That's it. We, We just say thank you. Thank you for loving us the way that you love us. Help us, Father, to love you back, to love people well, and to serve this world that you love so desperately. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. All right, here we go. Morning. 
Finding a place to hide this weary soul This bag of bones I try with all my might But I just can't win the fight I'm slowly drifting A vagabond Just when
Spirit will see you out at the block party. <laughs>